So you know the drill. Land in your body. Feel your breath. And I want you to notice a couple of things. The first is the sound of my voice. Notice that you don't have to do the hearing that it would actually be harder to not hear my voice or the wind, right? So hearing happens. So you could let go of having to do that. The second thing I want you to notice is just as you have your eyes closed, I want you to just kind of consider the gift of sight. And that when I ask you in a minute to open your eyes, if you just look in my general direction, I just magically appear. So you don't have to do the seeing either. Seeing happens. So what I want you to experiment with when we come out of this meditation is just how far you lean out of your experience to get me. Try sitting mostly in you, and then lean out just enough to get me. One of my teachers says it's about 80-20. About 80% in your own experience, 20% leaning out. So over the course of this talk, I want you to stay present in your body. Stay present to your own experience. Make sure you're breathing. Notice what comes up as I talk. Whether it's reactions or thoughts, just stay present to your experience. The last thing I want you to just kind of sense into is if you're leaning forward right now in your experience, if you're leaning toward maybe being entertained or stimulated by more words, just notice, not to judge it, but just to be aware of it. So take a breath and land back in you. And when you're ready, open your eyes. <clears throat> this is how we'll practice in the world, right? Because our life is not a retreat. So we got to figure out how do we stay mindful while we're doing activities? So you got it when you're sitting there, mindful. Mindful walking, some mindful eating, some mindful listening. How do we stay in our own experience as we conduct our lives? We've been talking a little bit about metta, practicing every day. And I would love for you to send me some metta right now, because I'm actually kind of nervous. There's people here I love and respect, and I want to do good, <laughs> subject to wanting to be loved like the rest of us. <laughs> so just, just radiate that toward me for a minute.
So the Pali word metta, translated into loving kindness, and I'm, uh, I should just cut back. I'm going to be reading most of this since I finished it about 45 seconds ago. <laughs> so I don't want to act like I'm not reading. But it's translated into loving kindness or kind regard or my kind of favorite one is like friendliness. You know? I could get behind friendliness. But I'll be using them kind of like uh, in whatever way seems right for the sentence. But that's kind of the translation. And they're part of what's called the Brahma Viharas, which are the four heavenly abodes or divine abodes. Like abode is like a place to live from. And I like that there's four of these heavenly abodes because there's four chambers in the heart as well. And so the four that are kind of laid out in the context of Buddhism is loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. The first two can be a little bit confusing, like what exactly is the difference between like loving kindness and compassion? So I'll attempt to just kind of separate them out a little bit. They seem to be like two beautiful wishes, where on one hand, compassion is the kind of love that sees suffering and wishes for its release. Where loving kindness sees the good in beings and wishes for their happiness. So one sees what's good, one sees what's hard. It's a simple way to look at it. They're also referred to as the four immeasurables. I like that. You know, my whole life, I never felt like I was enough. And here I got these things in me that are infinite and immeasurable. But we're going to be focusing on metta tonight. I wanted to talk about my experiences with it. It's part of a bunch of different lists. Right? So the Buddha created a lot of lists. And so you can find this in the ten paramis, or the, the ten perfections, kind of qualities of the heart. And it's also in uh, something called the Tripitaka, or the sutra basket within the Tripitaka. A bunch of words that I don't know what mean. One of my teachers, he says that metta was like an after-dinner mint meditation. <laughs> Just a little something sweet on the end, you know? Ajahn Amaro said that. I used to hate this practice. It was the most hated practice for me. I don't know what it was. It just vibed like too much of a Hallmark moment, you know? It was way too Mr. Rogers for me, you know? It's just like, man, I don't want to eat at Cafe Gratitude. Like, I don't want to spend these things. I became a Buddhist, not a hippie. You know what I mean? Like, very clear. I want to get back to the suffering, you know? And I should give you some context of who I was when I came to practice, whose voice that you're hearing, right? Uh, I was raised on the East Coast uh, into a pretty crazy family. Both my mother and father addicted to heroin. Um, my father in and out of prison my whole life. 
You know, that's it's not true because he hasn't been in prison in a long time. My whole uh, childhood, that was my relationship to him, was watching him come and go. He was a drug dealer, and he had the same plans for me. All I ever wanted was uh, uh, to be kind of acknowledged and loved by my dad in particular, because I had my mom's love. And so at a young age, maybe 10 years old, sneaking heroin into prisons, really feeling like uh, I was going to grow up someday and go to prison and be with my dad. That was kind of like an aspiration. That's what all the men that I had respected did was went to prison. So uh, I didn't have a lot of goals beyond that. By 15, selling lots of drugs, and uh, the next few years would be some of the hardest, you know, crack, addiction, uh, homelessness, locked up, the whole thing. And uh, when I was kind of running the streets, I carried a gun for a little while. And I don't tell you this because I want you to think I was some badass. Because I was just really, really scared and really young, really small. So I've always been a small guy. And I thought that it would make me feel safer. And it didn't. As I reflect on that chapter of my life, I don't think there was a scarier chapter. Because when I started carrying a gun, I thought everybody had guns. It's wild. Years later, I would learn how I was perpetuating my own suffering. There was a Ajahn Chah, it's kind of like a real lineage holder here. He has a sign in his monastery to the monks. And it says, you know, we don't become monks so we can eat well, sleep well, or be comfortable. Only to know suffering and how not to cause it. I was trying so unskillfully to escape my own suffering and at the same time perpetuating it. That's kind of what I want to talk about tonight. What is the skillful way to deal with our suffering and our pain? I spent my life afraid, terrified. I had no idea that on the other side of every fear was freedom. And Deborah spoke so eloquently last night about all these gateways. So it seems like I had a lot of opportunities looking back now. I had no idea what was waiting for me on the other side of those fears. I would have come through much sooner had I known that this was what was on the other side. Hmm. So jump 20 years and introduction to the Dharma and I come into a room like this and they tell me to be kind to not put any conditions on my kindness 
To not be judgmental. <laughs> That's rich. <laughs> what neighborhood did you grow up in? <laughs> Are you kidding me? I remember Jack telling this story of this huge banyan tree in Sri Lanka, and you know, it has this sign on it that says, you know, um, See how this tree offers its fragrance and shade to everyone, even to the man that wields the axe who comes to cut it down. <sighs> Did I mention to you that I felt like a loser already? Is that, is that clear? So I start practicing and very, very little relief in the beginning for me. I had a lot of baggage, particularly with my family. So I would go off to Asia for a few months and come back and they, they would blow my newfound uh, spirituality down like a house of cards, you know? How do we relate to our families? Because I, I paid therapists and I went on retreats and did workshops and it was just so hard to bring home. Sometimes now I see my dad, you know, he's a, a really beautiful dude. He totally changed his life around. But just like the rest of us, he's, you know, confused. And he's doing his best. And so a lot of times when I look at my family members, and there's a lot of suffering still in my family, you know, deep suffering, I try to not look at them uh, as the roles that they either did or didn't fulfill, or my relationship to them. I just see another human being that's suffering, you know, that's scared and confused. And I know those states really well. It helped me to understand how to lend a hand, where I could reach from that would be authentic, you know? How can I help? I guess the practice really helped me stop expecting people to be different than they were, you know? Because most of my life, that's what I hoped for, is that you would stop being a jerk, you know? There wasn't a lot of freedom there, because people don't, you know? People don't really change that much, a little bit, but they still don't act right. <laughs> I have a lot of prerequisites how people are supposed to act. <laughs> and to hitch my happiness to their behavior is insane. That's crazy. You know, when I look at the human condition in this conditioned realm that we're in, it's like people die, people disappoint us, people betray us. I mean, a lot of crazy stuff happens, man. And so we're left with this sadness and resentment and disparity, right? I guess the liberating news about it is when we start seeing at all as all conditioned phenomena that everything changes and that no one could ever fulfill my needs on an ongoing basis, we start taking it a lot less personally. It's just like, oh, right, right, you're part of conditioned phenomenon. That's right. Sometimes you'll be a jerk. Okay, that's not such bad news. Sometimes I'll, I'll get to play the jerk. You know, when we start looking at it like that, like, 
this is the conditioned realm, right? It's, it, it helped me, it liberated me a little bit to stop being so annoyed that people did things that bothered me. And actually I started just really slowly to allow things to be the way they were, right? What we've been practicing for the last few days, sitting with what is and allowing it, right? So it, it's internal, it's external. And there's a story that I love about the Buddha. You know, this guy walks up to him and he's just like, wow, man, it's really true. Like you're totally radiating love and kindness. What's up, bro? And the Buddha was just like, you know, man, uh, I no longer have any ill will or hatred. That I cut it out from the root. And all that remains is a free heart. It gave me a lot of hope. that it's natural for us to radiate love and kindness. That, you know, once the heart is unobscured, that's what remains. That I didn't have to manufacture it or make it happen. That all I had to do was take away everything that wasn't that. So we put a lot of attention on our habits and our patterns, right? You know? What is going on inside me? Then we start to wake up to how much power we have, right? So how much power there is in the eyes that we look through. Because we're constantly creating the world through the eyes that we're looking through, right? But it's a... It's a slow process, it feels like to me, you know? I've been hanging out, I don't know, for maybe 15 years or something, and it's still me in here. I smile a lot more, <laughs> but it's still me, you know? And so this practice, they ask us, okay, start with yourself, begin with you. Can you just send yourself a wish to be happy? funny what we find hard, that I think that I would have to be worthy of something to be happy. You know, like when you look at a child, they don't need to do anything to be loved or happy, right? They just got that coming, right? Because they're alive. Where do we lose that? So we start looking inside and we're trying to be uncritical and unselective and can I accept all these different parts of me, you know? The beautiful and the unskillful, all of it. You know, so in the beginning, I remember even trying to eat vegetables and stuff. <laughs> it was a terrible time. <laughs> Because I was trying to be good. I was trying to be worthy. You know what I mean? I was wearing white and shit. You know what I mean? <laughs> I did my best to suppress anything that I thought was unworthy or bad. And as I become more exposed to the Dharma, they're like, no, 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 it's all good, bro. You can bring that here too. It's more important to be whole than just good, you know? It's more important to be complete. And I was like, well, that's a message I could get behind, bro. <laughs> you know? <laughs> they asked me to look internally for what was screaming for my attention, screaming to be loved. Many, many parts of me that I didn't need to cut off from that part of myself. What a relief.
So when we're able to see how we're doing our best and still we make mistakes and disappoint people and get scared, right? Well, we know this about ourselves. We can start offering that same benefit of the doubt to the world, which is nice. You know, it gives us a way to work with all this disappointment and resentment, all these things. That even though we have this wish, we're still capable of these acts. We have an impact on people. When I can understand this in myself, when I can accept all the voices in here, it creates a little bit more room to see them in you. There's five basic steps to this practice. Uh, we haven't really, really kind of done the full tilt boogie meta yet. <laughs> you know? Like we've been trying to fit it in a short amount of time. But the five steps, we've, we've done, I think, four of them. We start with ourselves in whatever place that we feel it the most. Right? Whatever place we can really kind of conjure up or just sense into our love and kindness. So either we start with ourselves, or if that's kind of difficult, just our wish to be happy. Sometimes we even cut to number two, which is we open up to people we love. Some, some of us, it's easier to imagine wishing that on another than ourselves. you know? So ourselves, the people we love, then we go into people we don't even know, right? neutral people, the guy at the food stand, you know. I'm not even neutral about him, though. <laughs> Anybody I met, I got some ideas about. <laughs> Number four is people that are challenging or difficult for us. And I like what you said today, though. To not go to the most difficult, right? It seems like we're just looking for reasons not to believe this stuff. <laughs> huh? Well, it didn't work for my father, so what the F? <laughs> Gain some confidence in the practice, man. Start small, you know? And then we finally open up to all beings everywhere, which is so beautiful. This is when we get in touch with the limitless quality of the unobscured heart, right? So unconditional love means n not following our preferences, right? And sometimes when I wake up in the morning on my good days, I, I really do go into it with the intention that I'm going to be love, you know? Sometimes it lasts till lunch, sometimes, you know, not that long. And throughout the day, I'll check in with myself, you know? Like, um, I work with incarcerated people. That's one of the things I do. And so being a part of that system is really wild. Because, you know, you got to go through all the gates and deal with the staff. And it's uh, lots of opportunities. <laughs> and sometimes when I'm really finding it challenging, I, you know, I'll just check in. You know, like, hey, bro, you still love? You still love, right? Cool. All right. Keep going. I find my teachers in the strangest places. And I say teachers because I think anybody that stretches my heart is my teacher. <laughs> we all got gifts. 
we're doing this beautiful work in the, you know, in the jail, and the system is part of it. That's part of it. You know, can I accept the totality of what is and not pick and choose, I like this part of it, this part of it sucks. That's not reality. It's like looking at a sunset. And we're sitting there and it's this beautiful sunset. I'm like, man, this is beautiful. Except for that cloud. That one cloud is kind of bugged out, right? (laughs) I'm not really with that cloud. That's what it's like. So how we relate to the world, or actually how we relate to ourselves is how we relate to the world. Right? Like judgmental people experience the world as really judgmental. Right? That's what we do. They think the world is judging them right back, right? You know. Person that thinks somebody's always cheating on them is probably cheating on their spouse, you know? Somebody that always thinks people are lying. Maybe kind of suspect. <laughs> the critical mind only sees what's wrong with the world. And the heart reassures us that it doesn't matter. You know, like as we sink down into our experience, it just doesn't matter. You know, all these little things that we pick and choose. But think about whatever your thing is, whether it's critical or judgmental or whatever, the the many ways that we are. How long have we been practicing these qualities? I mean, a long time. We've had a long time to develop and condition ourselves in a lot of kind of unskillful ways. That's why it's a trip out. People writing me notes like, dude, I've been doing this method two days. It ain't nothing, bro. I'm like, what are you talking about, dude? You're 50 years old, dude. How long have you been a jerk for? (laughs) So I'm asking you to be gentle. Be patient. (laughs) The fact that you even made it here is amazing, right? Like, let's just keep seeing what we're doing right as well, you know? You made it here. That's, That's cause for a celebration. If this time has been hard and it sucked, even more cause for celebration. You didn't leave, you know? I really do think we underestimate how many good things we do. We don't see it as much. Yeah, to understand and appreciate our common humanity, you know, humanity, that's the word. It's, you know, wonderful and horrible as it is. Just admitting to ourselves that it is. This is what it is. All our hang-ups, all our love, everything. All part of it. But I want you to understand how this particular practice works. Because I don't want to come in here and do this talk on a really obvious subject like kindness. You know what I mean? And be like, you know, kindness, rah, 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 you know? And then you walk out like, you know, that guy, he's really onto something. That kindness stuff is really profound, you know? Like, <laughs> we all know that it's cool, it's good, it's, you know, wholesome. But how do we get there, you know? Now, it works a bit differently than affirmations, right? Because there's a, a flavor to affirmations that I'm like trying to convince myself that I'm something. Metta works directly on the causes. And uh, the way 
I, I mentioned that it was part of the paramis or the ten perfections. And these are ten qualities of freedom. And they're connected to liberation and compassion. And so it's not just the ten perfections, but it's a way to work on their opposites. Like actually, traditionally, uh, metta was used to work with anger and fear and aversion, like all of these things. So they, they start cultivating on the other side. But it, it works twofold. On one level, you're cultivating, let's say, loving kindness, right? And on a whole nother level, inside, there's got to be a release of something else, of its opposite, you know, that lives within us. Metta reassures us, reassures us that we don't have to live in a small and contracted heart. Not one more day. I got a piece so bad. <laughs> you you brought me here, Doc. <laughs> so whatever we're feeling. To just let it be there. <laughs> you know, practicing metta is not trying to change it, not push it away, right? Not to get rid of it. Right? So much of what we're doing is just really failed escape strategies, you know? So when we come here, it's just like, all right, man, just kind of dig not trying to escape. The heart of suffering is wanting things to be different. This is the heart of dukkha. What metta kind of availed to me was to realize that if I started giving people this kind of benefit of the doubt that they're doing the best they could, that if I could send that in here, it was really easy to send out up there. Right, that I'm doing the best I can do and so are they, right? But I started feeling less critical and less judgmental inside and out. Because we're eating off the same plate we're serving them from, right? You know, like one of my friends said something to me one time. I can't remember what I did. I think I, you know, I hurt myself. And they said, he said, man, you really live with a mean SOB, you know what I mean, inside of you. And it was true that I was still kind of living in that reactive, really quick to go to anger place. It's only a matter of time before it comes out or goes in. So as we soften our gaze inward, right? Be gentle, be patient, right? It's not just because it feels good. It begins to recondition us. And it helps us kind of lighten up a bit. So as we, so you see how they're connected. As we start accepting ourselves, we start accepting the world. If I could love these places in me, I might be able to love them in you, right? We start seeing the world as a friendlier place just because how we're relating to ourselves. I mean, it's, the world, as we look at it, it's, it's not from this like patronizing place like, wow, like look at how much suffering there is or this arrogant place of, oh, y'all don't even know you're suffering, poor babies. It's more like, from this really gut level of, we are all in the same boat. 
We are all part of this really crazy world. And we're all in this really highly sensitive, easily irritated place. They call it, you know, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, right? Not perfect, but complete. To have compassion for these beings that are confused, right? I'm talking about us. Confused, highly irritable, and really trying hard. To be worthy of love and compassion. Oh, man. It's easy to see how we can respond with compassion to this condition. This was the practice, this particular practice of metta is what changed my life. If I have any growth, it's from this practice. It took me however many years and I've been in service work for, you know, a long time, you know, hospice and jails and prisons and it took me all of that just to realize that I'd be happier if I was nice. It's so crazy. I mean, but that's that's big news for me. That was huge news. I didn't grow up in that world. The wild thing is, is my practice started working, but I noticed that people were the same, right? This whole time I was trying to change the world, and it was just me that I had to change. Mindfulness is waking up, you know, to this reality that this moment is all that exists. How do we want to be in it? How do we want to relate to ourselves in the world? Through this opening to life, like one moment at a time, and all these obstacles that we face in our lives and in the world, it's important to understand that its very nature is to cease, right? Impermanence is happening. It's really hard at work, impermanence. For all of this, all of us, we're all part of the conditioned realm and our awareness is not. This is, this is what I believe the Buddha said when he said the gates to the deathless are open. To be at ease with the way things are. To look at humanity and see its potential for enlightenment. Every being. Sometimes folks come up to me and they want to talk about service work or why I do it or how long am I going to do it for and it's just, it's a trippy question. And I can't really put it into words but I can't imagine not doing it. You know, it's like the, the body heals itself, right? Like my leg has never thanked my body for healing itself. It's just what it does. So once we realize that we're all connected, it's the only thing that makes sense. It's like asking me, how long are you going to help yourself, bro? 
It just doesn't even make sense. It's like, of course. What other response would you have to our connection? One of my teachers, a great teacher, he walked into a room and all his students were in there praying and he's like, what are y'all doing? And they said, you know, we're praying for you to live a long life. And he stopped him. He said, you know, I wish you would just pray for me to be reborn in a hell realm. You know, where my heart is needed most. And I reflect on that a lot. And I look back on the house I grew up in and the hell realm that is drug addiction, right? The, the realm of the hungry ghosts of desire. And sometimes I get tired and I don't want to go into juvenile hall. I don't want to get on a plane. I think of that teacher a lot. And I think uh, where my heart is needed most, you know. It's a source of inspiration for me. So as we wake up to this delusion that we're all connected, right? That there is no separate, unchanging self. And that it's not possible to liberate anything but all beings. We become reflections of each other. It's like a fun house. It's like, wow. Right here, I was supposed to start singing, We Are the World, but I'm not. (laughs) I will kill. I mean, literally, this metta stuff changed my life, and I said that before, but it it really helped me from being so alone, because I felt really isolated. You know, so, so from being really isolated and lost and alone, this practice helped me, like, just by having this silent prayer in my heart and under my breath as I walk in and out of people and situations and beings. I mean, it was beautiful. I think that's what the Buddha meant when he said he, he cut it out at the root, which meant in himself. Right? He made his peace and accepted himself. So he wasn't masking over anything that was there. He just wasn't triggered anymore by all these people that were showing him places in himself that he couldn't be with. Right? I cut it out at the root, Jack. That's deep. His words were, all that remains is a free heart. This is the infinite heart. This is how it's possible to love in the face of fear and doubt. Mm. Even when all those voices are running around in our head, Still okay. Still when I practice, even so so much later, I still think this is not going to work. And I remember, you know, I remember Mara. And I remember like that on the, yeah, man, uh, when we start coming Fear comes up when we start getting closer to the truth. So anytime I get scared now, I start getting a little bit excited. Because it's almost the same feeling in the body, right? It's like fear and excitement. It's just this shaking. So now my practice is to leave no rocks unturned. To really see even that voice, even that voice, even that voice. Can I still, can I accept all of them, you know? There's this quote, when there's no enemy within, there's no enemy without. Hmm. 
And please, as you're listening to this, and I'm asking you to take people into your heart, all these different people, please don't hear me say, saying, stay in an abusive relationship. And this is not a, a welcome mat. And this is not what the practice is for. This is you know, unacceptable behavior still exists and we should protect ourselves from it. That makes sense to me. But I just don't think living in a prison of a constricted heart is the best answer. That's, that's the issue for me. How do we deal with this crazy world and still live in our hearts? You know, allowing someone in your heart doesn't have anything to do with letting them back in your house, right? You want to make sure that's really clear. But when we sit in the privacy of our own hearts and we look at the cost of limiting our love, we're no longer willing to pay it. So we expand. This has reached a whole nother level. <laughs> no longer suspecting that I'm unlovable, I can finally let go of the view that the world is unlovable. I can feel the armor of my heart melting a little bit. I love this quote. He says, if you have come here to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let's work together. This view of our interdependence is a radical departure from our self-centeredness. What's the saying? Um, I'm not much, but I'm all I think about. <laughs> Moving from that place to a place where we're surrounded by prayers, right, with well wishes. We're surrounded by them because they're emanating from us, right? May all beings be happy. It's such a beautiful prayer. So some people do love and kindness in the beginning of their meditations, you know, to kind of get them in the mood. And some people at the end, it doesn't matter. But I think about what I love the most about this practice, you know, is how differently I experience the world. You know, it's kind of like an echo. Whatever you put out there come back, comes back to you, right? But how we perceive ourselves is how we perceive the world. What would it be like to extend, even to just one more person, that friendliness, that kindness? Everybody is deserving of it. There's a quote here from the Buddha where he's talking about habit hardens into character. He's talking about how kind of things happen. The word manifests the deed. The deed develops into habit. The habit hardens into character. That really stings. I think about what have I practiced all these years, right? So it's really simple. You know, if you watch a lot of porn, you'll become lustful, right? You know, that makes sense, right? If you lie a lot, you think everybody's lying to you. If you see the world as your adversary, you probably feel alone. If you practice friendliness, you'll probably feel like you live in a friendlier world. It's just a hunch. Whatever we do, 
repeatedly gets easier. So we can recondition these parts of ourselves. And if your mind is the main tool that we experience and perceive the world, it would make sense to incline it toward friendliness. give you a direct experience of uh, when this hit me. It was about six years ago, and I've been blessed. I've been able to travel uh, around the world many times, like really, really beautiful places. And I found myself in Budapest, and I was chilling, and I was alone. I didn't know a single soul. And I was sitting there, and I kind of started feeling lonely and I started like tripping <coughs> and I really missed my wife that day and the tears started coming down my face you know and uh, it's just sad and I felt like I couldn't take it for another moment like my heart was aching you know and I put all my attention on my heart I couldn't believe how much it hurt that ache. And sitting there, I recalled the loneliness of drug addiction. How lonely I felt then. How numb my, my heart was from seeing so much tragedy. And I came back to the present moment of that curb and me and my heart on this curb. It was so far from numb. I, I was so surprised that the thing, this thing in my chest still worked. Not only was it alive and well, but it had let somebody in. I let somebody matter. And I felt like it was a celebration, you know, like uh, these tears of sadness turned into tears of joy for me. I kind of think of the Mara's arrows turning into flowers. I couldn't believe that this old heart still worked after so much pain, you know. That was the moment I realized that my whole life I had been given the message that my heart was something to protect from the world, not my gift to it. We're resilient, uh, and we heal ourselves. Maybe we'll just sit for a moment. May I be happy? beings be happy.
Thank you all for your generosity. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.